Whoa. Before we get started, I want to go over the four sponsors for this episode who make all this possible. They're fantastic, so go show them some love. The first is the best URL in the industry, Crypto.com. They're a crypto platform with one goal, driving mass adoption. That's why we're all here, right? To get every human on earth a digital wallet and to get them using digital currencies. Crypto.com is helping people do that through buying, earning, lending, and a new card payment. Everything you could want is at Crypto.com. They've been longtime supporters of Off The Chain and recently announced a new exchange. So go help them out, download their app from the App Store, or visit Crypto.com and tell them Pomp sent you. There's nothing better in the world than a company helping to drive global adoption of this new technology. Another part of global adoption is making sure that we secure the various blockchains with computing power. CoinMine has built the best consumer experience in mining. Hands down, no competition. If you want to help secure the blockchain and get started in mining, you can go to coinmine.com slash Order a CoinMine, it'll arrive at your door, and you simply take it out of the box, plug it in, and connect to your Wi-Fi. You'll be mining your favorite crypto in five minutes or less. It is honestly magical. I have one running right now here in the office, and it's super quiet, it's got no heat, and every person that comes in the office asks, what is that? Every single person asks. It's a coin mine. The best part to me is that the coin mine comes with a mobile app that's super slick, and the company continues to push over-the-air updates to the device that add functionality, add tokens that can be mined, or increase the efficiency of the device. Similar to how Tesla does car software updates over the air, CoinMine's sending these passively to thousands of CoinMines around the world on a periodic basis. Pretty damn cool. When Farboot and the team pitched me on the idea of an Xbox or PlayStation-like box that could mine cryptocurrency in your home, I was immediately sold. I invested in the business, have a device personally, and keep telling people to go to coinmine.com pomp so they can save a lot of time if they want to get started mining today. And CoinMine has a partnership with our third sponsor for this episode, BlockFi. BlockFi is one of my favorite companies in crypto because they allow users to deposit their assets in a deposit account and immediately start earning interest. Think about it. If you keep your digital assets on an exchange or in cold storage, you aren't benefiting from any yield on the asset. With BlockFi, they allow you to deposit crypto and then get paid interest on a monthly basis in crypto. Deposit Bitcoin and want to get your interest payment in ETH? You can do it. Deposit Bitcoin and want to get your interest payment in Bitcoin? You can do it. The rates at BlockFi are currently some of the best in the industry. You can earn 6% interest on Bitcoin, and you can earn up to 8.6% APY on GUSD deposits. I'm an investor in the company and think BlockFi is building really important and compelling infrastructure. So go check them out at BlockFi.com slash POMP. Again, that's BlockFi.com slash POMP. And that brings us to the last advertiser of the episode, eToro. These guys have absolutely crushed it over the years. Their founder, Yoni, was one of the original Bitcoin OGs and has been ahead of almost every trend in crypto. He built eToro to help people buy, sell, and trade cryptocurrencies, but he added a few twists, social trading, copy trading, and virtual trading accounts. Social trading is a feature where every asset available on the platform has its own separate social feed where people talk about the asset, share trading ideas and analysis, and even include various charts or graphs. Virtual trading accounts is targeted at beginners. If you're just starting out and want to try trading with play money, eToro will give you a virtual account with $100,000 in it to test, learn, and get comfortable. And so, then that brings us to copy trading, which is by far the coolest feature. This allows you, as a user, to select any other user's portfolio to copy. If you see someone on the platform you like, you can set your account to mimic their trades. They buy Bitcoin with 5% of their portfolio, your portfolio buys 5% Bitcoin. They sell 50% of their Ether position, your portfolio does the same thing automatically. 
Copy trading's awesome, so go join the 10 plus million other traders on eToro and start trading all the most popular cryptocurrencies today. They're one of the largest companies in the space, and you can get started by going to eToro.com. Again, that is eToro.com, where the entire team's ready to get you started in just a few clicks. And don't forget, go subscribe to the Off The Chain daily newsletter. You can go to offthechain.substack.com. I write a letter of news, analysis, and opinion every morning that goes out to more than 40,000 investors. See you there. What's up, everyone? This is Anthony Pompliano. Most of you know me as Pomp. You're listening to Off The Chain, simply the best podcast in crypto. Let's kick this thing off. Will Reeves is running FoldApp and Lightning Pizza, along with helping out at the Venture Studio Thesis. In this conversation, we discuss the Lightning Network, consumer products, how Fold is driving mainstream adoption, what they have done to solve merchants' issues with accepting Bitcoin, and why Lightning Pizza became so popular quickly. Will also spent some time embedded at SETI, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, so we had a nice chat about aliens as well. I really enjoyed this conversation, and I hope you do as well. Anthony Pompliano is a partner at Morgan Creek Digital. All opinions expressed by Pomp or his guests on this podcast are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Morgan Creek Digital or Morgan Creek Capital Management. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Pomp as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. All right, guys, I'm super excited. Will's here. Um, you guys have built probably one of the most popular applications on Lightning Network uh, and have a whole bunch of cool backstories and kind of views on the world. So thanks so much for coming in and, uh, and talking about all this. Pomp, it's good to be here. Uh, happy to talk about full Lightning. I think we're going to have a good cop. Yeah, for sure. The the other thing uh, before we get started, Will told me that he uh, got engaged last year, and so we were swapping notes on uh, on the wedding planning, which uh, is now going to become a thing in my life. So we'll see how this goes. It's important to share what you learned <laughs> coming after you. It's it's uh you know it's an adventure. So happy to share. Uh, most adventures in life, I look forward to the uh, describing wedding planning as an adventure. I don't know about. We'll see. It's one that you're going to try to hide from, but you got to take it head on. <laughs> all right, um, let's talk about your background, kind of before you got into crypto bitcoin what, what were you doing um kind of pre all that so uh i'm i'm uh based out of california i've i've uh spent a lot of time down in silicon valley my my main focus has been building companies in payments retail consumer space um started a company uh you know building payment processing kind of subscription stuff um uh and then moved quickly into um, building out systems for you know Google Store to launch that, um, and so had a really wide variety of building companies myself, being embedded in uh, you know some of the large you know Silicon Valley stuff down there that I've got a got to learn quite a bit from, uh, but you know really coming to Bitcoin was was uh, one of the best decisions I could have made for sure. You remember the first time you ever heard about it? Oh yeah, um, I was. Uh, living down in Argentina. Uh, I was down there for about a year and there was a family party at the, at the family that I was staying at. And, and, uh, one of the cousins, uh, was a security engineer down there. And this was maybe 2011 or so. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was telling me about this thing called Bitcoin and he was, he was, uh, extremely bullish on it, uh, very early on. And, uh, 
that was pretty much the first time I heard about it. Now he, I've since kept in contact with this guy. Uh, you know, Argentina has gone through a couple defaults since then. And, uh, he not only has weathered that storm, but, uh, come out, uh, uh, pretty well. And so like the idea, Bitcoin safe haven asset, uh, in turbulent economies was just a use case that just hit me right over the head. Yeah, we had uh, Camilla Russo, who's writing a book on uh, Ethereum. She uh, was a reporter at Bloomberg, uh, kind of 2011, 2012 timeframe. Uh, and she was one of the first people to talk about Bitcoin at Bloomberg uh, because she was covering the Argentina markets yep. and a bunch of traders and everything. They, they were talking about it. Uh, what was it like living in Argentina? Uh, let's see. Oh, my God. Uh, it's a it's a crazy city. Um, yeah. It is one of those places that is a little bastion of europe in the middle of latin america i had no idea what was going to be there and so of course i land in a house full of tango dancers and so when you get into a situation like that you're going to see the heart of of argentina and so Mm -hmm. uh i had a pretty incredible experience hope to go back soon yeah that's awesome um and then so living in argentina hear about bitcoin don't do anything at the time no this is just starting to follow it uh you know uh kind of from a curiosity standpoint Mm -hmm. um I came back and, you know, I had some other experiences, you know, I'm, I'm from, uh, Sonoma Valley where we had a big migrant worker population and I was active in building out service, local services for them, housing, legal aid. And so we would bring people in to talk about, you know, uh, uh, and provide new services for these migrant workers that are coming in that are, you know, typically not paid attention to. And, And we had one guy come in and present on Bitcoin as a remittance tool. Uh, which again was one of those things. Okay. Borderless payments, uh, unstoppable, you know, un- censorship resistant use case. And, uh, it was another one of those is like, okay, it's coming up again. This is, this mm-hmm. is rearing its head. And so it took about three or four major moments of experiencing it before I started to, um, not only, you know, basically put started to put skin in the game start mm-hmm. to follow it not only from a kind of intellectual standpoint but uh start to follow the development and uh take a deeper look for sure and then so as you're going through that you're obviously paying attention and building payment technology etc at what point do you decide like hey maybe actually i want to go build in the space so the about two years ago is when i actually dove in and was actually starting to build mm-hmm. uh before then i had been building uh peer-to-peer marketplaces how can you take two strangers bring them together and exchange a car exchange a home mm-hmm. so essentially how do you have a big bag of cash mm-hmm. and a very expensive asset and bring two people who don't know know each other together and somehow come out with a happy um transaction on the other side and of course there's issues of trust safety um and when you look at just even the payment tools that we have at, at our disposal most of them aren't necessarily built for that they're they're built for an intermediary to be there mm-hmm. and so um there were a you know you would i would constantly be working in payments and retail start to see the bounds of where uh you know our existing infrastructure kind of doesn't support these use cases and kind of starts to uh, fail. I mean, I think it works in a lot of cases, but in some things, global transactions, um, uh, tr- uh, trust-based peer-to-peer uh, payments are some of the uh, areas where it was immediately clear that um, Bitcoin or technologies like it could present new solutions that would open up new opportunities, new industries. Um, and so uh, I started to really focus on that. Got it. And then um, maybe talk through a little bit, uh, kind of 
the idea for Fold and, and how you guys got started um, and what that original vision was like. Yeah, I mean, so, you know, Fold really started off as Bitcoin is growing. There are more and more people with it. And, uh, w- you know, when they have this, the idea is to show its use cases in the real world, you know, besides just, you know, hodling and uh, which is essentially a private action that, that takes place um kind of on an individual level, uh, there was, you know, an idea of, okay, what other use cases this, you know, and so payments was a thing that people talked a lot about, you know, you got to buy that coffee. And so uh, Fold was originally built to enable someone to spend Bitcoin and get their coffee. Um, and so, you know, the, the success of that originally was that it provided a new social uh, uh moment for bitcoiners to show people around them in a real environment hey look i'm using this in in the real world it's a real thing it's tangible and for a lot of people trying to wrap their heads around a new asset a new type of money a transactable currency is something that's important to them even though you know what we've come to learn is that the narrative has gone much farther with what bitcoin can do and be and so um you know besides uh, the ability to show hey friends i just you know bought my starbucks we quickly learned that you know the as bitcoin s- stood was just not going to be a transacting layer on on chain mm-hmm. um 10 minute confirmation times means that you're going to piss a lot of people off in the Starbucks lines. Um, you know, a high fees, depending on congestion, $5 fees on a $5 coffee. It just became obvious that, that everyday transactions and small payments were just not going to happen on chain. And so we knew that we had to kind of evolve with the narrative of Bitcoin, move with that. And that, um, layer two is where really where this use case was going to grow if it was going to grow anywhere. Mm-hmm. And and so I guess the key piece to all of this was like in the early days of Bitcoin, like how did people actually, you know, drive adoption? It was literally, hey, pull out your phone or get your computer. Let me get you a wallet and I'll give you some Bitcoin. Yeah. Right. It, it was this kind of virality of money, if you will, uh, was how a lot of early Bitcoiners came into the ecosystem. So they heard it from somebody. Then that person said, let me give you some. Uh, and so it's a form of skin in the game, right? Because now I have this asset that I own that um, has monetary value to it. People pay attention and then you're hoping that they then meet somebody else, tell them about it, and then they go ahead and they give them some Bitcoin and and it kind of, you know, goes on and on and on and spreads to eventually millions of people. Yep. Right. I mean, what we, what we've seen is, you know, that, that moment of that giving moment had both skin in the game that you actually got people holding the asset, which is number one, what we've come to learn is one of the most important hurdles to get over just give people some bitcoin give them some ability to watch the price action watch number go up watch it go down Mm -hmm. and start to harden them in that way and just build their curiosity about that the other part is early days bitcoin it was it was a friend showing another friend so there was this other element of a this net viral network of trusted um uh, um, you know, friends, family that were just kind of spreading this gospel, spreading this word. And so it had this, um, viral element, but also this kind of built in trust with having someone you knew refer it to you. And it was kind of a, a secret that was being told to you. And so it had this, you know, at that point, there's limits to how much that style of virality can grow. And so what we've done at Fold and what I've been trying to focus on is how do we expand these ways of mimicking this virality Mm -hmm. and you know ultimately is what we've seen over the past years is people tapping into existing industries existing mechanisms of essentially money transfer and start to flow that into into bitcoin and so for us um 
rewards is a big thing. You know, if mm-hmm. if uh, if all the rewards in uh, the U.S. were instead of being distributed in airline miles and points, given as Bitcoin, 16 million Bitcoin would have been distributed to people around the in, in the United States alone. Mm-hmm. So we start to see how we can take these existing behaviors that people do every day and kind of rework them in a way that doesn't make people change their behaviors, but gives new flows of Bitcoin to distribute it to more people in shorter amounts of time. Yeah, and really the way that I think about kind of the adoption of a lot of this stuff is um, when people come in through uh, price speculation, right? Uh, so price is going up or going down and people are coming in because they look at it as a tradable asset. That's a very different track uh, or path to follow. Uh, and you come at it from a different perspective than if I earned the Bitcoin or somebody gave it to me and I under with the understanding that it's money and I'm just to spend this at some other point. Right. Yeah. And so I think a lot about like if you bifurcated the Bitcoin adopters, Today, let's call it 70 million people, right? 1% of the world's population, give or take. What percentage is the speculators, right? And here is, hey, this is a trading asset versus the people who are here to use it as a currency and a a purchasing um, uh, mechanism. I think we would all agree, like, there's a lot of speculators, right? Oh, yeah. And... The work you guys are doing, it almost feels like one, you're trying to bring new people in to, to have them come in as that, hey, this is money, this is payment technology, et cetera. But two is you actually can pull some of those speculators over and kind of have them cross over into you can use this as money as well. Right. Yeah. So you kind of attack it from both sides. There's there's no doubt that right now, primary use case, the most people using it are using it for speculative purposes and the hodlers. I mean, essentially, you know, the way the way I think about it is that, you know, when once the first genesis block was mined the rudimentary technology to support hodling and, and the accumulation um use case of bitcoin was the technology was pretty much there send receive and just wait it out mm-hmm. and so um for us it's really about looking at the new use cases to expand what we understand bitcoin to be mm-hmm. and for the most part the idea of earning and spending the infrastructure just has not been there the mm-hmm. it, it has not been possible to deliver a user experience that is at the expectation of mainstream consumers and so for us it's really about pushing at the at the protocol layer at the application layer to start to um test out that experiment of Bitcoin as a um, medium exchange, um, but also to make it easier to earn. You know, with with Fold, it's not just about spending Bitcoin. It's about it's about earning it uh, when you're using your credit card, when you're mm-hmm. using, you know, your USD, your, your fiat. And the idea is that we get to start, um, you know, get that curiosity of the people that aren't there to speculate, that honestly get turned off by exchange environments where there's, um, you know, red numbers flaring, green, it's stressful, it's uh, confusing, it's expensive at times, um, and the utility is not necessarily immediately um, uh, available to them. Mm-hmm. And so for us, it's it's about building the infrastructure to help people learn about this asset slowly, start to accumulate Bitcoin. They don't have to spend it, they don't have to have it. And they start to start to see this, you know, and 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 the average user uh, is about five hundred satoshis or five hundred thousand satoshis a month right now, um, and so what we see is people start to learn about it. People, and then we get support tickets coming in saying, "Hey, do I spend this Bitcoin or am I supposed to hold it? You know, what what do I do with this?" And so what we've essentially opened up is just an education machine for how to 
bring in people who haven't had experience with the asset, don't necessarily know what it is, but are there to learn about it. And so with Fold, what we're trying to do is create all these moments of education. What is a wallet? What's the best wallet for you? How do you think about spending it? You know, we are we are totally here for the use case of accumulation, hodling, and uh, you know everyone on the fold team fits that fits that bill. Mm-hmm. But we also know that there are very real use cases for around the world of, of spending it, using it in their daily lives, and we also are enabling that as well. And we're doing that through incentives, not just telling you you should do it. For sure. So let's talk about like what's the functionality available to me as a user of Fold today. So Fold uh, available App Store, Android Store, download all, all, that. Mo- all mobile, all mobile. Okay. Uh, we started off on the web, but uh, we're f- primarily focused on mobile. Um, so you download the app, uh, sync credit card, debit card. And then from there, we have uh, right now currently 30 different merchants uh, available, Amazon, Starbucks, Uber. And uh, you go about spending like you do. You you know, every day you're ordering coffee, you're ordering a car, you're, you're making your Amazon uh, shipments. Mm-hmm. And instead, you do that with Fold. And what you do is you buy essentially prepaid credit into these stores. So, um, you know, you go into Amazon, buy $100 of, of credit, which is automatically loaded into your Amazon account. And from there, you're going to earn 2 to 4, 4% back in, in Satoshi's instantly. Mm-hmm. Now, on your next purchase, you can decide, hey, I'm going to increase my spending power and use that. Um, Bitcoin to supplement my next purchase, or you can you can uh, you know save it, accumulate it, um, and the idea is that uh, we both accept credit cards, but we also allow you to spend Bitcoin via Lightning. And so one of the points of education that we have is that um, if you're spending with Bitcoin, you're going to get three to four percent higher, uh, more cash back per transaction. Mm-hmm. So the idea is where you know we, you can kind of imagine what what's happened with Cash App. You look at Cash App. And it is the number one uh, financial app in the App Store. And in front of all of these mainstream consumers who may have never heard about Bitcoin, there is an entire tab about Bitcoin, teaching mm-hmm. them about it, exposing them to that. Mm-hmm. And so the idea is that we're not beating you over the head about what to use Bitcoin or what, um, you know, how you should be using it, but we're giving you an on-ramp to start to start to learn more about it and to take the next steps of actually um, starting to actually use it and, and uh, get onboarded into wallets, um, into the infrastructure, because there are behavioral changes of using Bitcoin versus what you might imagine with you know a credit card or something like that. Yeah, and, and the way that it, I take what you guys are doing, right, is I as a user want to spend Bitcoin, right? So I wanna go in and use um, this monetary um, asset and I want to purchase a good or a service. So let's say that you are um, Starbucks, right? I wanna spend Bitcoin. Immediately, there's a couple of challenges, right? So the first is I gotta have Bitcoin. Second is I gotta understand how to actually transact that Bitcoin. The third is that the merchant has to be able to accept the Bitcoin, right? And then the fourth is the merchant's gotta figure out what the hell do I do with this Bitcoin? Do I leave it on my balance sheet? Do I convert it, right? Kind of like more like FX type stuff. Um, you guys, my understanding is you've taken a very kind of nuanced approach to solving those problems. Maybe just walk us through like a transaction. Like what's technically happening when I have the Fold app, right? And I say, hey, I want to buy this cup of coffee from Starbucks. Like what is the the actual um, kind of technical sequence that occurs so that you solve all of those problems in that transaction? Yeah. I mean, you hit it on the head. It's It's a confusing problem to solve and you can't tackle, you know, there are companies tackling all these different pieces. But the way that Fold's done it is... Um, so you send Fold a payment, whether that's through your credit card uh, or through your uh, your Bitcoin wallet. Mm-hmm. And we take the payment and convert that into prepaid credit at 
these merchants. And so you send us $10 um, and uh, you want to spend at Amazon, we'll pull $10 of credit from Amazon down to you. And so what this essentially allows it allows you to do is you can spend in whatever asset you want, USD or fiat, or USD, fiat, or um, uh, or Bitcoin, and the merchant can settle in their, st- in their internal store credit. Mm-hmm. And so the merchant doesn't actually have to think about onboarding and, and all these more complicated things about what it means to take custody of Bitcoin, what it means to um, convert it. Uh, and you know, at a certain point, we got to figure out the exact things we're trying to solve because mm. it can't solve everything right now. And so we've really focused on solving the consumer side, creating an absolutely easy, simple experience to mm. both earn it and to use it um, with the idea that we start to demonstrate volume to these merchants and we start to demonstrate usage. And the one thing that Fold can do that is no other payment method can do right now is that when you use Fold um, you know, at, say, at a Target, um, the, that Fold user going through your store, uh, you know, from the merchant's perspective, is the only user that's not subjecting you to uh, processing fees from Visa and MasterCard network and has no ability for a chargeback moment. So for um, retailers, that's a huge um, uh, benefit. It's chargebacks, processing is multi-billion dollar headache for these merchants every year. And so what Fold allows them to do is essentially experience the possibility of what this asset could do for them and, and by adopting it without going full in and actually having to build out that infrastructure. So we're we're essentially trying to build this case by proving out the consumer side, consumer demand, and then be able to take that to our merchant partners and start to say, okay, maybe this is time for the next stage of adoption. And is your thought process, so in in that Starbucks is essentially not taking any quote-unquote Bitcoin risk, right? They're not having to change out their POS system. They're not having to worry about price volatility. They don't have to have a strategy for uh, kind of managing the Bitcoin, hedging it, uh, transacting it, and, and exchanging it back to dollars, et cetera. But is the thought process that like that's the end game where, hey, let's let the consumers spend Bitcoin and then the retailers don't accept it? Because there's a lot of people who would say like, oh, that's not really using Bitcoin as money, right? Like that's just like, you know, any other thing. Why don't we just use seashells and then the uh, retailer just ends up with dollars? Or do you look at it as, no, this is the first step. Let's get one side of the transaction comfortable, familiar, uh, excited about using this, et cetera. And let's solve the problem for the other side. And then eventually we can get the retailers to accept the actual Bitcoin itself. And like it's kind of like a, a gradual um, thing through the transaction. Uh, or is this the end game where only one side uses it? You know, this is this, this is all an evolution. And this is mm-hmm. what Fold is creating a product that is able to grow with the way Bitcoin is growing in its usage. And we are on the ground because we allow you to accumulate it, spend it. We actually get to see these behaviors change. About 50% of people are spending their Bitcoin rewards. 50% are saving it right now. So when we think about you know where we go on the merchant side, um, we're going to go what makes most sense for the merchants and build for them. And so right now, uh, settling in fiat is the only way that we're going to start to make this case to those merchants and start to have them um, involved in this asset. Now, where it goes in the future, we already have merchants that have approached us and there are merchants currently today that are using it uh, and taking on Bitcoin. Now, that's a very small minority of them. But when we start to look at where protocol development is and application development is, there are some use cases where Bitcoin can be used as an underlying asset in 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 a retail transaction that is seamlessly in and out of fiat um, 
uh, at different points. Mm. And that should support what the merchant's goals are, what they want to do. And so we are um, very close to a world where you can walk into a Target, um, use something like Fold with your credit card, the transaction is actually turned into a, re- a lightning uh, uh, Bitcoin payment. The merchant gets to then settle in the currency of their choice, Bitcoin or whatever it is, mm-hmm. but it's giving efficiencies to both sides. So what happens is because the merchant no longer has processing fees and chargeback risk, they're able to push all of those rewards directly back to users to incentivize them. Um, so the idea is aligning incentives here mm-hmm. and, and how we can start to rework this. And the only way that we're going to do this is by having real world products that people are using right now mm-hmm. in checkout lines around the country. And we get to see how behavior shifts and how it's changed and how we can tweak these incentives on both sides to, to kind of find the, the correct balance. For sure. And, and I guess for you guys, part of the uh, benefit here is it's not just Bitcoin only. Right. It, you can use Bitcoin, but you can also use your regular credit card, debit card, et cetera, through the application. And so it's a little bit more consumer friendly. Right. It's not this big like, oh, I have to learn Bitcoin to use this uh, fold can serve just traditional fiat payments. Um, and so the hope then is you kind of siphon some of those people off into Bitcoin over time. Yeah, it's it's, you know, about creating lowering the barrier to entry for both consumers and merchants to start uh, and getting exposure to Bitcoin and especially those that have been on uh, have been on the sidelines of it. So those, you know, we, we figure there's about 88 million people just in the US right now who want to have Bitcoin, who want mm. to, to want to have exposure to it. But a, a fraction of that are people who actually have it because they're the ones going through exchanges buying it. But there are people right now who want it. It's just the ways that we're distributing it right now are turning some of them off, are just blocking some of them from engaging with it. And so it's it's uh, it's our uh, idea to increase the amount of ways that someone can gain exposure to it without changing any of their daily behaviors. You know, the idea of um, gift cards, 93% of all Americans will use a gift card in the in a given year. It's crazy. 89% of uh, Americans are in a rewards program. Mm -hmm. So what we're doing is taking existing behaviors, existing um, uh, industries that people are familiar with, comfortable with, um, and and essentially co-opting that and and imbuing it with kind of Bitcoin. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, the idea is that you are getting adoption from people who start to say, okay, maybe I'm not there at the point where I say Bitcoin is a better money or a better Mm -hmm. dollar. Mm -hmm. But Bitcoin is for sure a better airline mile or a better Mm -hmm. or a better reward point that's going to be debased by, you know, the company. Um, And so it's just about creating a very slow way for people to um, gain exposure to it, again, without changing behaviors, both on the merchant and the consumer side. Mm -hmm. And to me, the benefit to a retailer here is I don't pay credit card transaction fees, so let's call that you know anywhere between one and a half and three percent, given the, your size. And then I also don't have the chargeback risk, and so I don't change anything in my system. I eliminate two of my biggest headaches when it comes to payments, and my customer can still buy the exact same products. 
there's probably a world where some retailer could get really innovative or, or aggressive and say, hey, we're actually going to incentivize people to use this rather than traditional payment methods. I don't know if that's to a discount or loyalty points. You know, there, There's all kinds of things that they could do, um, but it's almost like the retailer, once they realize the value proposition, they could actually help drive the adoption because it's better for them. This is a huge trend in retail right now. Um, uh, credit cards right now are um, increasing their processing fees. Really, it's it's two to four percent is really what a, a retailer could expect from any given transaction. Wow! And those are have showing no signs of slowing down. So much so that you have retailers like Walmart who are creating their own POS systems to try to get around this because right now. Uh, the credit card rewards are in such a competition that credit cards are giving more and more cash back. And what's happening is that's going more and more on the retailers to actually pick up the bill. And so what's happening is you, these retailers are now have a headache and are actively seeking alternatives. Um, Walmart just developed one that goes through your ACH, and that's how you pay at Walmart. Um, so people, we know that this is a problem that retailers are facing and that they are actively looking for alternatives. And the way that um, we think about this is that, you know, it's either the Visa or MasterCard giving you your rewards back or it's actually Walmart directly giving you your, your rewards back. And depending on who's controlling the payment, that's who controls the reward. And so at this point, Walmart is deeply incentivized both to eliminate chargebacks, which is a huge multi-billion dollar mm -hmm. issue for them. But when you're uh, a, a, a low margin business, uh, processing fees quickly eat up. And so you start to think about, okay, if we can start, instead of maybe paying two to three percent um, to processing companies and maybe we just give that exact two to three percent as rewards back to our own customers mm -hmm. suddenly we have our deepened our relationship with our own existing customers we are not beholden to rising processing fees and we've eliminated chargebacks and so again it's all about not beating people over the head about what's great you know bitcoin and all it's it's purely about numbers and incentives that were that the tack that we're taking for sure. Uh, when you guys started the company, you actually went through uh, a venture studio rather than, you know, raise kind of angel funding, et cetera, in the beginning. Maybe talk a little bit about uh, that venture studio, kind of how that model works and why you guys chose to pursue that. Yeah. So uh, Fold uh, came out of Thesis, which is a venture production studio. The idea is that it it builds uh, at the application layer and protocol layer on top of Bitcoin specifically, but um, uh, works on some other protocols as well. And the idea is there's a lot of knowledge that can be shared across projects, especially at, at such an early stage of the industry where um, uh, the idea of um, being able to harvest as much earn, uh, learnings, share uh, um, UX ideas and thoughts across a broad base of use cases allows you to excel much faster. Um, and so the idea is that uh, Thesis um, was created to launch these use cases, to test these ideas. Can we change the way people uh, accumulate Bitcoin. Let's not think about the exchange. Can we create um, and co-opt the idea of rewards and payments and create that as a whole new channel that benefits consumers and merchants? Okay, let's go test that. And so we launch product into the market, we get immediate feedback and we see where that idea is going. Is there immediate traction? Because the idea is not, we're not building for the next, you know, uh, a product that will work in 20 years, 10 years. We're building for products that are businesses today. Mm. And so the benefit of a venture model like this is that we actually get the freedom to test this in a market that right now is super nascent. And um, 
that uh, we get to kind of battle ta- battle hardened before you know we go all in and go all in for venture that you know may not lead to a, a, a spot that we want to. And we're here to dedicate our lives to this, so mm-hmm. we want to make sure the projects we're working on are are solid, have promise, and actually have somewhere to deliver value today. Would it be fair to say the venture model or venture studio model has less pressure in the beginning? So it's more of a kind of experimentation and testing than if you went out, raised capital, and like, we have to make this work? The only way a venture model works is if you actually have people committed um, uh, who have either uh, been entrepreneurs previously um, and have a have a direct use case they want to test or... Um, or they have brought products to, products to market, um, um, or it works when you actually have an idea that you know already has traction, and that mm-hmm. that you can that you can just kind of add a little bit more fuel on the fire and see where you can go for next year. And so, um, it is one of the things that has that you know that doesn't work in all contexts. Like it's not right for everybody because you know the most important thing is to have skin in the game. And so the way that we built the thesis model is that. Every um, lead of a, of, a, of a vertical, so myself, I was I'm running fold, uh, has skin in the game. Like that is your project. Mm-hmm. If that project is not there, then you know we'll we'll you know maybe maybe there's another thing that you can go do. But the idea is that you're that you are very deeply committed, as if you are raising funding for this. And mm-hmm. essentially, instead of getting a a larger angel or seed, it's some it's much smaller amount, so that you can have a place and kind of a, a laboratory to test this. And you do it in much smaller time frames. We're talking under six months. Mm-hmm. And then from there, once that's validated, then you can spin out, go look at seed. And that's that's what folds us on. We just uh, announced our seed funding um, with the, with some incredible partners in the space uh, uh, back in October. Uh, tell us a little bit more about that, right? So you guys uh, had used the Venture Studio model, kind of tested a bunch, figured out, hey, there, there's some traction here. We think that this is uh, got some legs to it. Um, what was kind of the decision making to spin out? Like, were there certain milestones you were looking for? Um, or was it more of just, hey, we, you know, we're gonna have to raise outside capital and like really go put a full effort behind this. Um, and so that was the driver. Yeah, I mean, it, it's first of all, proving at a base level, you know, is there a path to a sustainable business here? Are we going to bring on partners where we know that we have a very good idea of how to make this into a business today and change and, ex- and ex- execute on our larger vision for tomorrow and the years after. And so um, for us, it was really important to make sure we came in with proof points that just were able to be blatant, blatant, blatantly obvious for any of these partners to bring on. Okay, you say that you can change behaviors and create a new way for people to earn Bitcoin. Okay. Let us know what the numbers are. How many people are doing this? How many have done that? Um, how much are they earning? What are they doing? What are they spending it on? Okay, um, you you say that layer two lightning is going to be the future of of uh, Bitcoin retail payments. Prove us that. Well, we launched Lightning Pizza to be like, okay, we're going to prove that we're going to launch a real world service on top of Lightning and show that not only that can Lightning handle transactions that aren't you know a couple Satoshis, but $25, $50, and launch that on a nas- nationwide service that anyone can use. We launched Lightning Pizza. Explain what that is. So Lightning Pizza was a, um, a layer over Domino's Pizza uh, that w- uh, allowed Lightning payments. So essentially Domino's built on Lightning. So anybody could uh, use the Lightning Network to have Domino's Pizza delivered to them, order it in store, um, and essentially it uh, gave you all the ability to interact with a real-world service nationwide, see, hey, are these users just in a pocket of New York or San Francisco? Well, we launched it and found that 
nearly every state in the in the country had activity in ordering Domino's Pizza over the Lightning Network. I just love the name Lightning Pizza because it was Lightning Network, but also Lightning Fast in terms of getting the pizza to your door. It, it worked in all the ways. I mean, right now, um, you know, Lightning Pizza for us was like a, an experiment, a project to figure out not only internally for us, uh, is Lightning at a mature enough level to actually launch a real world service? Um, but it was um, also about resurrecting the meme of Bitcoin and pizza again and and to to see, okay, we're at a different point in Bitcoin development and protocol development. App layer two is finally here. Mm-hmm. Let's see if the if the pizza use case can actually work now. Mm-hmm. And so um, we launched that. Um, we had thousands of orders in the first days after this. We didn't even know how many people had lightning wallets. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, shout out to Blue Wallet. About 75, 80% of all orders came from Blue Wallet custodial solution, but it also proved, you know, lowering the barrier to entry into these wallets was an important thing. Now, long term, is that where we want to be? We'll figure that out. But the idea was that right now, Lightning can provide a, a base fun, uh, payment layer for real world services and it can mm-hmm. work without breaking. Yeah. And as you guys built this, um, one, it was just cool to see the community kind of rally around it, right? I think it was just kind of a cool thing. It, a lot of had to do with the pizza and Bitcoin memes, but um, also it worked, right? And and so you could actually go on and, and, and use it. Talk to me more about the Lightning Network itself, though, right? Like, there's a lot of different things that you could overlay on, you know, the Domino's APIs and, and their website and say, hey, you know, use XYZ different payment method, like why the lightning network and kind of give me an understanding of like how you guys see the state of where we are. Yeah, it was it was interesting. I just went to the uh, light first lightning conference in, in Berlin uh, about a month ago. Um, and it was one of those great moments for a kind of state of the union state of affairs about where we where we are in the space. And um, I have to say, I've been blown away by the speed of development and um, where we've come in the last year alone with where we are at Lightning. And so, number one, there's a validated uh, large developer community focused on this. So that's, you know, when we talk about um, building new protocols, one of the most uh, um, important metrics is the developer community and um, activity um, people you know dedicating their their work towards it and it was plainly obvious how many people are there building on various use cases for what lightning can be messaging on top of lightning payments um uh, instant settlement for trading uh decentralized exchanges all of these various things and so for us we've chosen to explore lightning from our our perspective of retail and adoption Mm. and so uh, the best part about the Berlin conference was that it was both a celebration of all these different use cases and how far we've come, but also a sober look of just what challenges are there. And um, by no means is this uh, production ready, Domino's is ready to take this on as their primary payment system. We don't expect that to be that for, for a little bit. So for us, the benefits that we see going forward um, with Lightning are essentially three things. is instantaneous settlement which has implications both for retailers and businesses to be able the idea that you can settle and have your money on your books that you can spend on new inventory, new um, uh, um, marketing, and have that capital just ready to deploy, which right now you're waiting a couple weeks to, to do, which changes how you do business. Um, it has implications on the trading and exchange side of instant uh, uh, final settlement. There's great talks. Jack Mollis just has done a, a great one about really how revolutionary instantaneous settlement of Bitcoin actually is. Um, 
And so uh, there's the instant settlement. Uh, there's also bringing Bitcoin to lo low fees. So, in, you know, down to a couple Satoshis there, um, which opens up a bunch more use cases, micropayments, streaming payments. The thing is that Lightning is not just about replacing an incumbent payment system. It's about fundamentally changing the, the, the fundamentals of what a payment system can be that are far beyond the capabilities of what we currently have today. Um, already it's demonstrated um, use cases that are just not possible from uh, you know, an existing credit card transaction mm -hmm. or any other payment system we had. And so we really are looking at Lightning for those competitive advantages and how we can leverage those to um, take advantage of existing problems. Like we just mentioned the process, rising processing fees, chargebacks. How do we take the things that Lightning can bring and no other payment system can do? And how do we start to in, uh, 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 introduce those to the people that need it most? Skirt, skirt. Want to know who has the best URL? Crypto.com. That's right, Crypto.com. They're a crypto platform with one goal, mother mass adoption. That's why we're all here. We're trying to get crypto in every wallet. Crypto.com is helping people do that through buying, earning, lending, and card payment. Everything you could want at Crypto.com. Go help your boy out. Tell him Pomp sent you. Download the app or visit Crypto.com. Pomp's got you always. Ever wanted to get into mining and didn't know how? Don't worry. Your boy Pomp's got you. Everybody got some electricity and Wi-Fi. All you got to do is go to coinmine.com, you buy a coin mine, it's like an Xbox or a PlayStation that helps you turn your electricity into Bitcoin. That's right, you purchase it, it shows up at your doorstep, you pull it out of the box, you plug it in, connect to your Wi-Fi, five minutes or less, you're mining Bitcoin. All you have to do is control it from the mobile app they provide, and then you receive over-the-air updates that add new coins and new features on a consistent basis. Kind of like how Tesla does over-the-air updates and updates the car software. Just you're updating your coin mine. Consumer mining made easy. That's right. Go to coinmine.com, tell them Pomp set you, and thank me later. One more word from our sponsor, BlockFi. Their new interest account allows you to securely deposit your Bitcoin or Ether at BlockFi and receive 6% annual interest paid monthly in cryptocurrency. This rate actually compounds, so you receive a 6.2% APY, which is very attractive given the alternatives. So you can actually take your Bitcoin, you can deposit it with BlockFi, and get paid an interest rate of 6% in return. Go check out BlockFi.com slash POMP. Again, BlockFi.com slash POMP to sign up and start earning interest on your crypto today. And the Lightning Network itself, I think one of the big uh, kind of knocks on it right now from the uh, the not even detractors as much as the skeptics maybe is oh you can't really put a bunch of bitcoin through the system um it doesn't work uh it's not as fast as promised all this kind of stuff like the one i focus on the most i think is the probably most realistic uh detraction is you can't put a lot of throughput today right so um we were talking a little bit before we started recording uh but maybe just describe like why that is today and explain kind of how that's been a self-imposed thing uh more from like a safety of the network versus technically it's not possible yeah um you know, this is absolutely a, a hard cap that's been imposed by on by the protocol development and for good reason. You know, this is a fledgling network and it relies on robust participants in there that can route payments, you know, hop to um, to pump 
to me, to someone else, so Pomp can can fi- uh, figure out a settlement. That requires a network that has enough um, uh, critical mass to be able to uh, to enable seamless payments that you can count on 99% of the time. Mm-hmm. Now, when you have an early network, you just don't have the network participation yet. Now, Lightning has been growing and is, is very quickly going to be on track to get there. But in these early days, it, it's, it's, it's not. And so the idea is self-imposed um, uh, uh, a ceiling on, on how much a given transaction can be. Right now, I believe it's around $400 with where we are at um, with uh, Bitcoin and Lightning. So provide some problems when people want to buy air, air, airline tickets through Fold. Um, but it's for good reason. It's number one, keeping real uh, expectations real. Um, not over promising, which is a hallmark of other crypto projects in this space. And just about being, uh, uh, a way that we can both take users on now, introduce them to lightning without putting them at risk. Mm -hmm. And so all of the issues with, um, channel capacity, transaction size, um, and even just the tooling to support, um, you know, a lightning node, things like this and manage that those are all active have active solutions that are that are incoming there's amp which is going to allow you to break payments into much smaller payments and route that to um route that um as your payment so there's um and there's new tooling out there that just makes spinning up a node managing it much easier and simple so you're not losing um having not losing any money and so the idea is right now there's really been no major case of any major loss of funds which to me is incredibly surprising given how much activity and commerce is actually going on on the on the lightning network right now mm-hmm. and so a lot of these are self-imposed and they are because we know the solutions we know generally when they'll come and when they will we'll start to see that those those self-imposed limits start to relax because what the lightning network is 18 maybe 24 months old in Maybe. terms of yeah, I mean, did, you know, when does when does it start from a paper or mm-hmm. from a you know a, the the first kind of release? Um, you know, I'd say a good um, benchmark is you know eighteen to twenty four months. I think that's I think that's right when people actually started to really build on this as a production mm-hmm. environment. And so, given where we are today, like there's actually been pretty good progress, right? There's you know thousands of nodes, and, and kind of people have really uh, built a number of uh, wallets. There's been um, you know tens of thousands of people who have adopted it and started using it, and there's been applications built like Lightning Pizza. And, and so, again, is it Visa today? No, of course not, right? But in two years or less. It's pretty incredible the progress, especially given that it is done by uh, kind of a loosely coordinated group of uh, individuals on the internet that have built this global product that's going after you know some of the largest uh, settlement networks in the world. Yeah, it's it's um, it it has been incredible to be a part of and and to see and so. Um, you know, we have not only seen massive explosive growth in it, but we've also seen there was a moment where a couple of headlines saying, oh, the, you know, the amount of uh, active nodes has gone down for a while or the amount of, you know, fees has gone down. So is that is was the network healthy? And actually, it was a sign of maturity for this network that people are getting smarter about how to um, manage funds how mm-hmm. to um, uh, have more efficient infrastructure so that it can start to move to the next level. And so we're only going to see more and more use cases developed on top of it. There's some incredible stuff of, of USD to lightning invoices, which, which essentially opens up the possibility that anybody currently with a credit card or bank account could be spending 
um, at retailers, at an exchange with their USD, but it is actually being settled as a Bitcoin payment. Mm-hmm. So that on both sides, it's instantly settled on, on, on the side protecting the actual receiver, but on the, it doesn't require any behavioral change from the actual initiator of the payment. And this would be US dollars into the system converted to Bitcoin across the Lightning Network converted back to US dollars. Exactly. Yeah. And so uh, it could be converted back to US dollars. It could be uh, settled and kept in a, in a Lightning channel. Um, the idea is that you're really leveraging some of the, again, and competitive advantages that Lightning and Bitcoin just present that the incumbent world does not offer. There's nothing. There's nothing like it. And the only way is to, you know, actually shoot a actual gold to someone at the speed of light and then have it settled as, you know, in that way. There's just really no support in any of this infrastructure yet. And so, the things that I'm most interested are really exposing and going right after these competitive advantages that just are not offered that provide huge savings efficiencies uh, and other benefits for both consumers and merchants traders all you know speculators and the cool thing is is that the lightning community is developing on all of these use cases right now Um, and so lightning is going to make trading better lightning will make paying better lightning will make hodling better like there are ton of things that just is all in service of of essentially adding more value to the base chain, and this is again like in we talk about in a you know in you know a decade is lightning going to be it? Um, we're betting it will. You know we know it will happen in some layer two solutions. So there there could be a world where another protocol is developed, but right now um, there is no reason to believe that lightning won't be that solution right mm-hmm. now. The idea of going from U.S. dollars across lightning network and back into dollars it almost makes the dollar transactions uh non-sensible u.s dollar transactions right which which is a a pretty interesting thing to think about where um things like the lightning network or the bitcoin network can change the way that even fiat holders interact with money and the financial system it 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 provides an instantaneous bridge for the the currencies that people currently hold whatever that may be any type of fiat u.s dollars euros and creates a way for an essentially an atomic swap into any other currency around the world and so it's Mm -hmm. not just u.s dollars but it is any currency it is any asset that lightning can facilitate instantaneous settlements between uh, different actors around the globe transacting in different currencies with zero conversion fees on the on both sides. Mm-hmm. And so, obviously, the visas, the Mastercards, and the legacy banking system like that's a pretty big threat to to what they're doing. Uh, Fold obviously could be a large threat to some of the uh, the, the payment incumbents as well. Anything that you've seen there in terms of how uh, kind of the markets responded, what you guys have built so far? So I, I can tell you that these incumbents are paying attention. Um, we are actively uh, in communication with a couple of those um, uh, those networks that you just mentioned. Uh, and we know that they are not only paying attention, but they're running their own experiments. Um, and so for us, we we you know, we, we see what te- what the technology we're developing is could be um you know, something that threatens their business model. But we're also seeing them start to build. Now, I don't think they're going to be able to build as fast or as, um, as um, you know, intelligently as people who have skin in the game, who are, you know, with their ears to the ground and really leveraging and having no essentially incumbent business model to protect. So I, I do know that they are um, thinking about this. Um, and I will say, I think in 
2020, we're going to hear about some partnerships uh, that are going to involve inc- involve incumbents and start to mm. directly introduce them indirectly to these these um, you know a Lightning Network and other 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 developments for sure. And you know, look, it's certain. I think uh, reporters are getting smarter about asking these people these questions. Uh, yesterday, the news broke that the PayPal CEO he owns Bitcoin. Right, yep. and, and he only owns Bitcoin, and, and some of that is probably, hey, I want to see what this is all about, and learning and experimenting. Some of that's, I'm a believer, right? And, and so it's interesting to see that. Um, another aspect that uh, I find really interesting about Fold that maybe the incumbents uh, have a different approach is around privacy, right? And so the incumbents have uh, historically been uh, very susceptible to data breaches, cybersecurity attacks, etc. Uh, you guys are taking a different model as to how to protect consumers. Maybe describe a little bit about uh, what the the incumbents' challenges are, and then how you guys are solving that. Yeah, I mean, historically, you know, Fold has been working in the checkout lines of these major retailers for 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 a while now. So we we understand that we're also a a, a company that comes from the Bitcoin world, and so mm-hmm. there are certain values um, uh, from Bitcoiners and those that are wanting to use a product like Fold. Um, that they want to see in the product, and the interesting thing is, those values prevent some present some incredible opportunities for consumers w- worldwide. So you think about um, when you go swipe your credit card at a merchant, um, your your location, your name, your transaction details, your payment details are all then given to the store, your bank, the store's bank. Um, the payment processor, any rewards program that you're using, and maybe you know you're using a financial planning app like a Mint or something, and so that one transaction is then being distributed all of that data across to all of these different actors who have various varying levels of security mm-hmm. and commitment to actually protecting your data, and mm-hmm. they're almost all of them are licensed to resell that data to you know who knows who, and so the idea is that it's. Um, we're living in a world where our, our data is just freely given in a, in a, in a, in a world where 50% of retailers are compromised every single year. Hundreds of millions of Americans data is, is compromised in these acts. And so this leads to huge issues with uh, fraud and um, has real impacts on credit scores that can be, that can have real impacts um, when you're not taking, um, you know, a, a, a more private, uh, secure approach to these types of transactions. And so what Fold has done is not just slap, you know, use Bitcoin in payments and rewards, but it's taking the ethos and the values of Bitcoin and also pre- providing that to payments and rewards. And the way that we're doing that is essentially ensuring that when you use Fold at a retailer, you are not leaking any of that data to them. You are um, the retailer is only seeing a payment from um, uh, from Fold, um, and uh, your credit card is only sees that you're paying Fold, and so it it, it makes it pseudonymous. So you're not tied to the things that you purchase. So advertisers can be overly targeting, uh, and you're not uh, for the most part you're not leaking your private um, and transaction details that can be susceptible to attackers and advertisers like. Mm -hmm. Do you think that that will eventually force the traditional payment systems to be more worried about privacy and they'll move to these models? Or do you feel like they just, they have to stick with the model they have because of the um, kind of innovators dilemma? 
Yeah, I, I think it's that. We, well, if, if there's any trend that you can see over the last couple of decades is that the more data that you can suck up from your consumers, the the, the bit larger company you're going to be more successful. And that's just what we've seen in the business models. The number one purchaser of this purchasing data at point of sale is Google. Mm-hmm. The reason why they're doing it is trying to create that full picture of when what you're searching to what you're buying and you know ultimately create better ads for you and more targeted ads. And so we know that the trend has been overwhelmingly to um, uh, uh, get as much data from consumers as possible. But what that has also done, it hasn't seen um, at the same time secure infrastructure that's being built to make sure that data is protected mm-hmm. and stored correctly. And um, what happens is, is that the pendulum has just swung far too much to one side, so much so that these retailers now are so susceptible to these hacks that there's overwhelming evidence that uh, when consumers' uh, data is compromised and a given store is named in that comprom- uh, uh, was is named as the kind of culprit of where that that data was compromised, users don't go back to that store upwards of six months. They it actually changes their spending behavior, which is a huge hit to the, to a lot of these companies. And we're only seeing this types of these types of compromises accelerate. And so I think very much so that this is on their radar about. Number one, we need to be better at what we do with data. Number two, companies like Apple are coming out about protection and privacy, making these overtures of saying, hey, we're going to win more business ultimately when we put the customer first. Mm. And so I think the narrative is starting to change. Um, now, how fast that that does depends on how fast companies like Fold and others in the space that are doing things like this grow. Mm-hmm. When you look out 10, 20 years, what's your kind of vision for where the Lightning Network goes? What, what does it become? Um, I think the Lightning Network, what we're already seeing, an interesting thing is it's it's uh, the the use cases are, are diversifying. There's messaging being built on unstoppable messaging being built on unstoppable money. We're seeing people uh, release stable coins and, and interoperability on the Lightning Network. And essentially, it is this um, network that allows instantaneous settlement across um, uh, um, parties interacting on this network in a way that uh, has implications for wide, wide amount of use cases that af- will affect people, you know, in many ways in their lives. Mm-hmm. So what I'm looking at it from is that this is a way as Bitcoin grows in an asset, as Bitcoin is more widely distributed, more holders are there, as the idea of how to use Bitcoin starts to settle and it becomes more of an asset that people are holding, but not only that, are being more and more incentivized to use in their mm-hmm. daily life, that Lightning Network will become the way that that is used. I think that the majority of people being onboarded into Bitcoin in the next five years are probably going to be onboarded through layer two as opposed to going on chain. And so I think number one, the most obvious thing is that it's going to change how people experience Bitcoin for the first time. Uh, It is going to be the layer that people are onboarded directly into, and it's going to be the layer in which provides a a user experience that is at the level, if not um, beyond what they expect from an existing incumbent um, uh, uh, options. And so I, I think it will soon be at a point where people, mainstream consumers could be re, uh, interacting with the Lightning Network and not even know it. Mm-hmm. And this could be in the context of, again, trading, retail payments, anything. Yeah. It's super interesting to think through um, kind of where the where we're going, right? Understanding what the challenges are today. Um, same question, but for Fold. Like, where do you see it 10, 20 years from now? 
So with Fold, we we we're in, we want to introduce you know Bitcoin to mainstream people. We want to make Bitcoin accessible to reg- regular people who aren't down the rabbit hole yet. <laughs> yes, and then be the vehicle to drive them down that rabbit hole. Yep. And so for us, you know, we we are committed to the growth of this asset class in general. We are supporting and and here to support the values that the base protocol has has. Um, is already presenting to the world and accelerate that through mass adoption. And so for Fold, we not only hope to change how people are paying and being rewarded, but we also hope to change how those how we think of those systems overall about a focus on how do we have a payment processor that's not built on fees? Mm-hmm. How do we have a reward system that's not built on data harvesting? Mm-hmm. How do we take not just Bitcoin and ap- apply that to payments and rewards, but the ethos, the values of it. And so what I would hope for Fold is that we are giving the same amount of value that people may see today from using and transacting in the ways that they do, but we're keeping them safer while doing it. Mm-hmm. We're putting the consumer first and we are enriching them, rewarding them more than they ever have in the past. And mm-hmm. so for us, it's not just about bringing and putting Bitcoin in people's pockets, but bringing the values that we've learned from this asset that this community has developed and rallied around and, and put that at the very core of, uh, of uh, these uh, behaviors and institutions that historically haven't put that first. Yeah, it, it's taking a long-term view, and you said it earlier, it's putting the customer first, right? And it's understanding that if we do right by the people who use our products, then over a long period of time, they'll remain loyal, we'll build a sustainable business around it, we'll align in a win-win situation. And um, if you do that for long enough, everyone else kind of the flash in the pans come and go, right? And you're kind of the last person standing, um, but you're also the largest player, and, and uh, it's a pretty tried and true method, but it takes a lot of discipline. Yeah, I mean, it's you know I've I've been an entrepreneur building you know products uh, for a while, and um, what what I found is that it is it is a whole new game when you're building, um, not just you know building a business because that's hard enough for anybody, but when you're building a business in a space like this that is also growing, that is also nascent, that the there's multiple levels now that you have to that you're there's extra levels that you're now having to think about and mm-hmm. pay attention to macro events around the world that could directly affect how your product works in a day-to-day retail transaction for somebody. And so for me, it's really the only way to create a sustainable Bitcoin business is to look long-term. Um, but right now is to del- deliver the right incentives and in unit economics today. Mm-hmm. And so it's a challenge to both have this long-term v- vision of where you want to be and all the things you want to change while building a business that delivers value today. Mm-hmm. For sure. Uh, before we wrap up, I always ask a rapid fire set of questions. What do you think is the most important company in uh, Bitcoin or crypto other than Fold? I would say right now, Cash App is... Why? Is, is, uh, it has... Um, done an incredible job at um, introducing new people to uh, the idea of Bitcoin in a Trojan horse capacity that is, you know, taking the idea of, you know, the the old Venmo send and receive and then having Bitcoin front and center there. And not only that, having a commitment to educating people about the asset as well. Mm-hmm. Do you think that Cash App goes outside of just send, receive, buy and hold? Are there other things that they could do? Oh, absolutely. I think um, if you're the, if you're Jack, what do you uh, what do you do? If you're Jack, you take it slow like he has been. 
Um, it's pretty incredible. It, it is. I mean, and I say take it slow. And actually, you look at that. You look at any other companies, in fact, doing this very quickly. Yeah. But um, I would say you, you you continue to take it slow. You mm-hmm. are um, the 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 main benefit that you can bring to the space is provide a um, simple, um, accessible on ramp for those to get involved in the space. Mm-hmm. And then from there, you'll you'll introduce them to a whole world of people like Fold developing new use cases and value for that. But right now, the most important thing is to create a um, an, an easy and safe way to onboard people into into this asset, change the way that people have been historically onboarded into it. Yeah, it's um, there's a saying in the military that is uh, slow is smooth, smooth is fast. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think that's like the perfect uh, um, kind of quote for what Square's done. Absolutely. Is they've just been very uh, deliberate about every action. Uh, they've made good decisions. They haven't chased um, things. Uh, my favorite is when he gets asked, you know, are you going to credit crypto? And he always responds with hell no. Yeah. Right. Not no, but hell no. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> um, what uh, What's the one regulation that you would change or improve if you could? Oh, man, this is easy one for me. <laughs> okay. um, the the current um, tax uh, implications of, of, mm-hmm. of uh, spending Bitcoin, um, the, the idea that people are exposed to capital gains and the reporting is onerous. It is, it is single-handedly hampering a, a uh, massive use case of what Bitcoin could be. And I do believe if that was changed, mm-hmm. um, the narrative about what Bitcoin could do and how much it could grow would, would, would drastically change. Now, I would say that there are technological solutions that are coming on the horizon that are going to, um, whether the regulation comes or not, will will help push that forward. But um, that alone would, would, would be an incredible help for the space. For sure. Um, what's the most controversial thought you have in all of Bitcoin? Um, like that, you believe it and everyone else is going to disagree with you that, um, hyper Bitcoinization is, uh, is, is, a, is a wonderful idea, but I do believe it will always the, one of the benefits of, of real benefit of Bitcoin is providing a counterbalance to the existing financial system that we have. And that instead of entirely replacing, it will live alongside and provide a level of balance control counterweight um, that will ultimately allow the benefits that could can be brought from both sides um, and allow them to coexist do they coexist in silos forever or is there kind of like a merging into a new system that that takes the benefits of both I think there's 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 a merging but what it does is provides fundamental controls on 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 you know, especially the, the the world that we live in now, and you know, MMT and quantitative easing and money printing, it provides an a a check on that, almost like a balance of power that um, will will make sure that the, the pendulum doesn't swing as far as we've seen it, and mm-hmm. gets us into this kind of constant crisis mode that we're currently living in. Yeah, what's the most important book you've ever read? Most important book I've ever read. Um, oh man, let's see. Um, I mean, my favorite, I think one of the, the, the most recent books that I have read was um, uh, um, uh, Mutual Aid. What's that? It's a, it's a book by this uh, guy named Murray Bookchin. And it's, it's, it's suggesting that uh, the, the way that people evolve and develop and societies develop is not through this idea of kind of ruthless competition, you know, me over you. But it's actually when incentives align to have... Uh, cooperation over wide groups of people mm-hmm. that is not about you know 
the you know winner takes all that the real real progress happens when uh, incentives and culture is able to align in a way that is about mutually um, benefiting each other in, in a society and it's really rare and hard to get that and we've only seen it happen a couple times but what I love about that is it, it shows so much about where we are um, in this space what essentially Bitcoin has done has been an incredible uh, um, way to align incentives over a broad diverse group of people in a way that I think is ultimately going to be enriching for everyone yeah it's pretty interesting um, What's the worst book you've ever read? Like, what's oh, a book you man. read that you're just like that sucked? You know, I you know I read um, I don't this, did, this book didn't suck, but uh, I think just to be a uh, provide kind of a contrarian opinion like Sapiens, I think it's, not impressed. I it's I mean for how much play it got, yeah. I think. But you know, it, it was fun. I think I took a lot of things from it. But it was just one of those when you look at the hype and you're there. It's it's very easy to be like I think we went a little overboard on this. It's a safe answer when people say like, you know, what book have you read recently? By saying that, it it brings a lot of like, oh, you, oh, you must be intellectual. Oh, yeah. you, you know, like, yes, sure. <laughs> um, aliens. Speaking of sapiens, uh, believer, non-believer. You know, this is one of my favorite questions that you ask. Um, partly because I actually spent a couple weeks at the SETI Institute. Oh in, man, let's in, go! All right. So spill, I, spill the beans. So I don't know if you know, but um, so uh, Jody Foster, who was in contact, right? Uh, uh, I spent about a couple of weeks with the actual Jody Foster, the real life Jody Foster, who Carl Sagan wrote the book about. Wow. Up at the Hack Creek Observatory in Northern California. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's set. It's in the middle of nowhere. You, you drive out there. It takes several hours to get there. Cell service cuts out suddenly radio it's only some apocalyptic preacher and then that starts to cut out and then it's radio silence and that's why they've chosen this area mm-hmm. and so you go there and just a group of scientists come up there they started in the 70s and now has you know was uh, funded by um one of the microsoft guys mm-hmm. um and they have been on the forefront of looking for uh radio pulses around the um around the universe and, and seti search for extraterrestrial intelligence exactly is yeah. that what it is right yeah, yeah. okay so uh, this is based out in California, but there's there are uh, installations everywhere, and it's okay. a, it's actually a um, a uh, place that has historically been funded, um, uh, publicly funded, but there was an uh, a time when you know I think it was a Republican senator came out and said, look at all these Democrats in California funding, look for, looking for aliens and spending all your tax money, and so it it. it kind of dampen the system for a while um that's, then, a, that's a pretty good sell to the people it, it right genius it was it's the easiest thing you could have done and so uh that actually generated a lot of private interest in it see this is when you got a lot of the microsoft guys in there and it's kind of created a resurgence mm-hmm. in in this search and so um well, I went up there. We started to increase the radio bandwidths of which you could search from because you really you're looking through this what's called the the, the trough, uh, the specific radio bandwidth that you can listen most clearly as as um, as widely as possible. Mm-hmm. And uh, we were working on that. And I got to just see these guys working and just hanging out. You know, went out for drinks and just got to just be embedded with them. And so I was. Why'd just, you go? Because uh, I was writing a story on them. Uh, I was up there and had been. You know, I was a journalist and in, in far in my in my past. Um, and uh, so I went up there and, you know, they have this thing in the back of closet. They have this big uh, refrigerator. It's too super dusty on top. You open it. It's full of champagne. 
Interesting. And that champagne is, is being saved. Is being saved for that day. <laughs> wow. So there's this like interesting. You talk about subculture. Like mm-hmm. Bitcoin has an interesting subculture. Mm-hmm. SETI also has an interesting subculture. Yeah. What What were like the the biggest surprises? So you're going up there, right? You get embedded uh, with people who are literally searching for extraterrestrial intelligence. So you already kind of probably have some preconceived notions, etc. But what was the biggest surprise? I mean, I went up there thinking I would, you know, see this dark room with all of these like beeping lights and just like um you know spatial maps happening and like a lot of energy and it's really just a bunch of a bunch of people sitting in like super drab office um nothing sexy about it uh for hours on end just working to make the most minute of improvements and there there's a it's a similar thing it's a it's a major project it's one of the only scientific fields that you can dedicate yourself to that has seen no measure of progress mm-hmm. yet they still have dedicated their lives to it there was a uh, a gentleman who came on uh, the podcast and he said every human has two questions at some point in their life one is what happens after death and two is are we here alone yep right and the are we here alone is actually uh the one that hasn't become religious right the, yep. the what happens after death is much more of a religious question um but the are we here alone is much more scientific and the part that uh amazes me is you bring together so many intelligent people um and they think and believe so many different things like they literally argue and they will tell you you know we've never been in contact there's no radio waves there's no anything uh and that same person will turn around but let me show you this you know piece of material that we can't explain right and and so it's interesting but to me the part um that i always go back to is it would be one of the greatest scientific breakthroughs of our life is the person or the group that contacts or identifies extraterrestrial life and mathematically, there's a very high probability that it's out there. Um, do you think with the time you spent there, this is more of a we might not have the tools to actually be able to probe far enough? Or is this a there's so much like herd mentality, everyone's looking at it the same way, and we just may be wrong in our approach so far? Yeah, I think uh, we are. One of the things I learned is how actually limited we are. It was, it's really cool to see when you, you know, again, there's so many parallels to bitcoin community in space like the promise of what it could be could be massive but when you actually start talking to the builders and the people there they're super very realistic about Mm -hmm. the challenges and and that have to overcome and the limitations that they have very rational very rational and you have to be that way but else you have to have that split mind like you just talked about of also keeping an eye on the larger vision um and so I kind of am at the thing where right now our tools seem like they are so very limited to do this, where we would have already been, we would have been approached farther if there was an advanced civilization. And so the best bet that we can be thinking about now is finding a civilization that is it is less advanced than us and even at a kind of microbial level, if anything. Um, and so uh, it's, it's one of those things where they're both preparing for linguistically how to speak to extraterrestrials when they get here, but also knowing that maybe they should be tooling their tools for looking for lower stage civilizations as well. That's incredible to hear that not only is SETI looking for extraterrestrials, but they're also preparing what happens if they come here. Oh, yeah. This is so follow uh, Seth Shostak. He's okay. also he's he's one of the guys all the Hollywood films go to, but his 
I think at one point his title was uh, like head of extraterrestrial communications or linguistics. It's or a pretty badass name. It is. I have <laughs> absolutely. If uh, if you could aspire to any title, I think that guy's one. I might just change my fucking title to that right now. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, you speaking to the airways like this could that could make sense. Um, and you know it's but it's a, it's this this group is incredibly uh smart they are you know most of them are out of stanford there's a lot over here on the east coast but their lives the lifestyle is actually really great there's arecibo in puerto rico there's hat creek up in northern california there's a couple over here in, in greensboro and um you know they're just uh, there's some in hawaii they're they're hopping to these mm-hmm. incredible locales um on the hunt for aliens but living a good life while they're at it yeah it's uh it's the one thing that fascinates me is just um, odds are they're out there. Yep. You know, are we going to find them? Are they going to find us? And uh, and then knowing they're there, kind of identifying this is fact is a big deal. Um, but then obviously being able to uh, interact is uh, is the part I'm personally most interested in. And uh, my fascination with all, this all started with one simple question, which is, uh, do you think that aliens have pets? I, I would I'd have to say yes. I would absolutely have to say yes. And maybe we will, hopefully we don't become their pets in the future and they find a new pet shop here. <laughs> um, I would like it to maybe be the other way around. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, I'm going to go for a hard yes on that. It just, it feels like it's some, it's the part of the aliens no one ever talks about, <laughs> right? Because we all think like the little green man showing up, but like, is he rolling up with, you know, pets or is he coming alone? <laughs> awesome. What, uh, what one question do you have for me to uh, to finish up? So, um, you know, we, you have, you have builders coming up here and, and, you know, they're all hyping, shilling their own projects. Um, where do you feel is the most, um, uh, exciting new development in mm-hmm. space coming from? Like what, what right now is like, we, we know that it's, you know, speculation and all that, but like, what is a new, um, kind of, uh, take or insight that you have that you're, you're paying attention to? Yeah, um, so I'm going to answer this a little, probably not the way you want me to, but uh, it's a non-technical thing. And uh, it's the time elapsing that allows for the legitimization of Bitcoin. Mm. And what I mean by that is, you know, 11 years ago, white paper gets published to most of the world, they would say, you know, quote unquote, nerds. And they're, you know, cryptographic experts. They're, they're people who are kind of on the fringes of society for the most part. You know, uh, it's not like uh, CNN was covering the, you know, cryptography right. mailing list, right? Yep. Uh, type thing. Today, you know, this year in 2019, we've seen the president tweet about it. We've seen Congress and Senate hold multiple hearings. We've seen congressmen who literally have said, you know, on the, uh, on the congressional floor, uh, you can't stop Bitcoin. It's unstoppable, right? That was amazing. Um, yeah, you see, you know, and, and, and the two to me that they get, you know, probably not enough credit are Warren Davidson and uh, Patrick McHenry, right? Like, I mean, they're full on Bitcoiners. Like, they, they see the future, they get it, they're, they're behind it, et cetera. Um, you see countries even like uh, China, right? Russia, uh, Venezuela, right? That are, again, uh, approaching this as not a question of, hey, is this going to be a thing? And more a question of like, what are we going to do when this thing is a thing, yep. right? And so to me, like that's been the big leap over the last two years is it went from like 
oh, what are you like crazy people on the internet doing? Like, you know, oh, the Reddit community, you know, they've got some new thing. I don't know. They got Bitcoin. They got Dogecoin, right? Now there's been like a true separation, I think, in the legitimacy of, oh, Bitcoin's real, right? Like the president tweeted about it. Um, And there's probably still a lot of questions and kind of like maybe it's a thing, maybe it's not with everything else. Like when I talk to institutional investors, they don't talk about anything other than Bitcoin. Yeah. Like they, and, and some of it's they don't know, right? So they actually don't even know the names of other things uh, or to ask about them. And some of it's just like in their mind, Bitcoin is like the most legitimate thing that they could put in their portfolios. And so they're trying to understand it. Um, so to me, like that's been the biggest development. Uh, what I don't know is like how much farther can it go? Right. Like, yeah, there's like some big things like, you know, a central bank puts it in their reserves or a country says it's a, you know, a recognized reserve currency. Um, Two countries start like trading and settling in Bitcoin. Right. Like like there's some of these like big, big moments. Um, Maybe a country comes out and says, hey, you know, we just put two billion dollars into an energy uh, project to mine Bitcoin, like that type of stuff. Those are like. I still think pretty far away. Um, I don't think that stuff's going to happen tomorrow. Uh, but, you know, look, I've been told by multiple people around the world who, you know, would be in the know. There's many countries that are mining Bitcoin, right? You know, and all this kind of stuff. Again, it's just like every day, it's like 1% improvement, yeah. right? Or 1% more legitimate. Uh, and then you look back and, you know, we're 11 years in and you're like, hey, man, like CNBC can't get enough of this, yeah. <laughs> right? True. And like now they're, they're talking about price. Right. And so they're not talking necessarily about the, the things that, um, you know, around adoption or things that you guys are working on, et cetera. But price then gets to well, what are people actually doing with it, which gets to mining, which then gets to adoption, which, you know, I'm waiting for well, who's the first news station that reports during earnings season the Bitcoin transaction volume for the last, you know, three months and compares it to Venmo, PayPal, Apple Pay, yep. you know, everything else. Like to me, that's where you get a really, really interesting um, dynamic because now it's not just, hey, Bitcoin as an asset, it's Bitcoin as a payment product mm-hmm. is reaching mainstream. Yeah. Um, and so I think that's kind of like that whole thought process or, or you know, conscious stream is, uh, is something I'm paying a lot of attention to because I think it's really, really important because uh, it elicits the capital into the system to let everyone go build. I, I couldn't agree more. There's been a palpable shift this year, I believe in that, in mm-hmm. that way. Um, and yeah, let's get back to building, minting new Bitcoiners. I mean, part of what we are here at Fold is also, it's not just about getting more people with Bitcoin, but it's about establishing an electorate of people with Bitcoin that have those values, defend it in, in the public sphere um, and slowly and then all at once, you know? Absolutely. Where uh, where can people go find more about uh, Fold or uh, or find you on the internet? So uh, Fold's available Android App Store. Um, you can find us at foldapp.com. Uh, uh, and you know you can always reach out to me if you're ever having any issues, have some feature requests. You know I'm at WLRVS. Um, give me a shout, and uh, you know we are building for you all. So uh, don't uh, don't be a stranger. Go download the app. <laughs> all right, man. Thanks so much. We'll do it again. It's been good. Hey everyone. Pop here. If you like this episode of Off the Chain and want to help us take crypto to the top of the Apple, Spotify, and other podcast charts, please do us a favor and rate, review, and subscribe. To review, simply go to the Off the Chain homepage, scroll down until you see the five blank stars. Taking 15 seconds to fill those stars in and leave a quick review goes a long way in helping us take the entire crypto ecosystem to the top of the charts. I appreciate you listening and see you next time on Off the Chain.